cheese is almost like the holy grail. Once you become plant-based, cheese is often the very last thing that people give up for a very good reason. It's because we don't like cheese. We love cheese. The more I learned about it, the more apparent it became. That cheese is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter of all food types per kilogram behind beef and lamb. And the reason for that is because it takes 10 litres of milk to make one kilogram of cheddar, for example. So even if you displaced all of the milk in the world today with plant-based alternatives, you would have quite a small impact on dairy agriculture because cheese is still increasing dramatically at a ratio of 10 to 1. So until you solve the cheese problem, you're not actually solving the dairy problem. Once I made that connection, it was just like, wow, we need people to focus on cheese. (laughs) Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. A common thing among most of my guests is that they've made some kind of pivot in their career to develop an idea that they had to change our lives for the better. Some of those pivots have been bigger than others, but few have been as dramatic as the one made by my guest today. David Boca had a distinguished career as an aerospace engineer. He's a licensed commercial pilot and spent more than a decade developing aircraft for Boeing. It wouldn't be too much of a leap to assume David's pivot somehow involves air or maybe even space travel, but it doesn't. It doesn't involve aircraft or flying or anything you might associate with someone of his background. Nope, David pivoted to cheese. David is the founder and CEO of Change Foods, a startup focused on producing animal-free dairy products by using precision fermentation technology to produce compounds that are bioidentical to what can be found in traditional dairy. Change Foods' mission is not to just recreate dairy, they want to improve it. And they're starting with cheese. The knock on most dairy-free cheese products is that it fails to replicate the real thing in its basic form. But David's goal is to give us the stretchy, melty gooiness we all love, only free of lactose, hormones, and antibiotics. Only it doesn't come from a farm. It comes from a lab in what used to be one of the largest agricultural regions in California, the Valley of Heart's Delight, Silicon Valley. David Boca was born to Italian parents in Melbourne, Australia. He grew up in a traditional Italian household, which meant that food was at the center of just about everything they did. David would eventually become a vegan, but his childhood diet consisted of plenty of meats, egg-based pasta, and yes, cheese. His family owned and operated a chain of fruit markets and later opened an international food store. David said he had several interests growing up, but food was just one of them. He was a good student and he was also a talented musician and artist. He considered pursuing music as a career, but when it came time to go to college, he decided to study engineering. I've always been very diverse in lots of different interests and wanting to pursue different paths. So it was actually surprising it would be either music or aerospace engineering. You know, it was like so dramatic, the contrast. But I often obviously chose aerospace engineering because I thought I could make a really good profession out of it. And it just really fascinated my intellectual side, whereas music, I 
could always keep as a hobby and could always fall back on as a passion sort of on the side. So that was a pretty clear choice. So yeah, at the end of high school, I chose a double degree in aerospace engineering and aviation, which actually also included getting my commercial pilot license. So I've actually got my full pilot license and did all the theory exams to actually also be able to pursue a career path as piloting for airlines. But I ultimately chose aerospace in the end because I thought I'd find that more satisfying. So let's talk a little bit about your aerospace career. So at Boeing, what was your primary role in engineering? I was part of the first recruitment cohort they had for quite a number of years, I believe. So there was an intake of about 10 students at that time. I think it was 2005. And so I made that cohort and basically became one of the first engineers that was working on the 787 Dreamliner, which is now one of the planes that's flying around. And it's a really great aircraft. And it was really slanted as being one of the most sustainable aircraft of its time because of its weight. And they were using a lot of carbon composite fiber materials. And so they would try to make it lighter to obviously then use less fuel. And uh, it's proven to be a really successful aircraft in, in Boeing's pipeline. And so I was brought in to help with all of the engineering side of, of that back in the early days. And um, I was put on one of the, the components on the wing. So in Australia, we make all of what's called the movable trailing edge. So the flaps, slats, things that basically move all, all on, the, on the wing. That's what we were responsible for. So I was assigned to one of the, the key components, which is called the aileron, which is what turns the aircraft or makes it very roll important from side to side. Oh, very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was assigned as part of the aileron analysis team. So I was doing all of the stress analysis, doing all the modeling, and then had to do all the simulations and do all the, basically the design engineering to make sure all the components are safe. And then went through all of the FAA certification, all of the testing regime. So it took about four to five years pretty much to get all of the aircraft components fully designed and certified and tested. And it was a very exciting time. And then I moved on, became the, the team lead for the aileron and then moved on to the outboard flap, which is a much larger component on the wing as well. And so then you also that. worked for Airbus as well. Yeah, I did that during my undergraduate, actually. So I spent a year in Hamburg and uh, worked for Airbus, but that was more in flight dynamics. So I was working in a simulator, which was pretty fun. So I managed to fly that around a little bit and and crashed that a few times. Yeah, but Boeing, I was mainly responsible, at least in the first part of my career, more in the design engineering and stress analysis team. In 2017, David had what he calls the Big Bang moment. It completely changed his life when he met a young social and environmental entrepreneur named Thomas King, a vegan who was interested in developing alternative proteins. He taught David about the animal agriculture industry and the myths we've been taught about how our food is produced. Food had been a passion for David his whole life, and for his family, it was their livelihood. Still, David says he became a vegan almost overnight. I basically learned a lot about industrialized animal agriculture and changed my diet. In fact, it was overnight upon, and one of the catalysts for that was meeting some great people that educated me a lot about our food system and animal agriculture and basically the cruelty that we were inflicting um, just by the choices, the simple choices we were making. And of course, being fairly highly educated and a professional, I, I was really disconnected and understanding how protein and food is actually produced. And also from another point of view and perspective, I felt like I wanted to do more with my career and my life. So I think from a timing point of view, personally, I was looking for something. And then this really just filled that void. Once I really learned about how food was produced and the impact it was having, and it was the cognitive dissonance, I think, was the most alarming part. The fact that I grew up in a household of food and realizing that, wow, 
the idyllic notion that people have of seeing a, you know, a cow grazing on the field and pastures and the way that fantastic marketers have led us to believe is not is so far displaced from the reality of how food is produced. And then I started doing my own stats and research, and then that just solidified all of the things that I was hearing. So 99% of meat, eggs, and dairy in the US are from industrialized factory farms, and you can Google that. And so, the, you know, people always say to me, well, what about, you know, regenerative agriculture and grazing and grass-fed beef and all of that? which is fantastic. I think all of these things need to happen. And, you know, we require solutions in all fronts, but the reality is so far removed from that, that if we were to try and supply the demand with those types of processes, we just wouldn't have enough land or resources unless we tripled the price or more of conventional meats. So the pragmatic side of me really clicked with the fact that something has to change and something has to change dramatically. And I just knew in my mind, I guess, from my aerospace slanting, what to do and the order and process to do it. And I couldn't see anyone else locally doing that. So it was, I think, a culmination of all of those factors that led me to say, wow, this is huge. We've got to change the way we eat. And once I connected all of those things together, I knew that I had to act and do something about it. And that's what catalyzed this whole change in my own life. And I changed my diet overnight. I was making a, a bolognese one evening and, and I said, you know what, instead of using the meat, I'm going to actually swap it out for lentils and chopped up mushrooms. So I'm quite good in the kitchen as well. And uh, you know, because of my upbringing, I always used to see my mother cooking and I used to cook with her quite a lot. So it always comes naturally to me to sort of be quite inventive in the kitchen. And so I'd made that bolognese and suddenly I was eating lentils again. I was feeling more energetic. I slept really well and I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And so I never looked back. And I, of course, I learned about all the, the latest food innovations, predominantly coming out of the USA and Israel at the time, and met Thomas King. And we started Food Frontier, which was a fantastic platform to build off because Food Frontier effectively is an industry accelerator for alternative proteins. And we had to do a lot of thinking around what is this not-for-profit going to be doing? How is it going to add value? You know, it's a very complicated ecosystem with government regulations, entrepreneurs, investors, startups, advocacy, because no one even knew the term plant-based didn't really ex even exist in Australia back then. So there was a lot to do and strategize around what do we want to set up and how are we going to go about it? And Thomas is just an incredible young aspirational leader and hadn't really done anything entrepreneurially prior to that himself. And so I obviously came to that that partnership with a lot of, well, the structural components of, well, this is what you need to do to raise funds and let's create a business plan together. And here's sort of some of the strategic pillars that we want to walk through. And so I added a lot of the structural elements to that relationship to help bring Food Frontier to the forefront and actually get it launched in 2017. I was actually poised to be the operations director of Food Frontier at the time, but being a not-for-profit startup, it was quite difficult to manage the drop-in salary and things personally because I had uh, got two children as well. And so I decided to move into food and remain on as a board member for Food Frontier at the time. And so once I knew I wanted to move into food, then I was actively looking for opportunities in the space, which is where I found this wonderful hemp food startup in Australia and uh, met the founding team. And similar to that, to Food Frontier, I was adding a lot of the operational expertise in that equation because we had a brilliant marketing person. We had a real great innovator that was forward thinking in the hemp foods side of things, but they were lacking someone that really understood manufacturing and brought that detailed structural element to the party, of course, uh, which ended up being me. And so I moved from aerospace into the food industry and it was a you know, huge transition and, and learned a lot in that process as well. But there's another parallel. The food industry is highly regulated, and so is aerospace. So you go from one highly regulated industry to another, which 
it seems like your engineering expertise would apply, you know, very quickly to that, adapt to that as well. How, how easy was it for you to go from one to the other? Very normal to me. In fact, in terms of the things that we had to achieve in the food startup that I brought over from the aerospace world. And a lot of that was more just systems thinking. How do we set up a manufacturing line? What are the things to establish really good quality controls? Because I also had a manufacturing background, a quality assurance background at that stage, but also an engineering background. So I was really leaning on and leveraging a lot of the skills that I developed in those disciplines into the food space. The good thing about it, though, is that I wasn't from food, so I was thinking outside the box and saw things differently. And I think in some ways it's quite refreshing because I have noticed, I mean, aerospace is a very highly regulated industry and has evolved that way over many decades to great attention to detail and very fine tolerances, whereas the food industry seems to be a little bit more varied (laughs) in its approach from, you know, the mum and pop shops, you know, which have very loose sort of controls right through the large food companies and conglomerates like Kraft Heinz and so forth that obviously have been built over many decades and also have very tight controls. And so you see a spectrum of everything in between, whereas obviously the aerospace and aviation industry can't be that way because of safety. And so that's the first observation I made in the food industry is just the amount of variation in operations. And of course, I just came into it sort of at the very top end, sort of saying, well, this is how we're going to manufacture things and it's going to be very tightly controlled because that was just the normal way of of doing things from the aerospace world. So that was the most, I think, interesting observation moving across to food. But I think it's put me in really good stead because especially now in this new era of food innovations and technologies, especially more so because it's it's interesting to, to note that in aerospace, we're taking very exotic, expensive materials and trying to manufacture them and commercialize them ultimately to come down the cost curve and that's exactly now what you're seeing in these new food technologies is that they're extremely expensive they're very novel and with lots and lots of r&d just like in the aerospace world and guess what they're trying to scale them create manufacturing lines for them with new equipment and new ways of building things and of course coming down the cost curve as aggressively as possible so in fact the skill set from aerospace is perfectly suitable to the challenges that we're facing in food technology at the moment So let's talk about dairy. So you zoomed in on dairy as being your latest project with Changed Foods. Can you break it down? What was that moment, that epiphany that you had where you just said, I'm going to focus on dairy? Well, it happened as a process of me learning about all of the different technologies and all of the different gaps in the market and the different players as part of my experience with Food Frontier. So when we set that up, we did a lot of traveling. We visited a lot of companies like Impossible Foods and lots of different plant-based and, and even cell-based. You know, Back then it was Memphis Meats, now it's Upside Foods, but we, we met up with Memphis Meats back in the day in 2017 and just educated myself a lot about all the different technologies and gaps and seeing what's happening in the market. I didn't necessarily want to rush into anything myself. I really wanted to take the time to study and figure out ultimately with everything in front of me and all the world of possibilities, what did I actually believe that I think would be the most revolutionary and more so was needed. And I felt like that even a few years ago, there was a lack of people focusing on dairy because cheese and dairy is just such a huge market with so many different products and a diversity of food formulations and and flavors. And also it's worldwide, you know, cheese is a universal sort of product. So once I made that connection, it was really just that I knew that also precision fermentation was going to be very disruptive and revolutionary for so many ways. I loved the fact that it was still a cell-based technology and that it can recreate bioidentical compounds. 
however, was also a technology that's been used and commercialized for over 30 to 40 years in many other food applications and medical applications and farm applications. So I love the fact that it had a much more scalable, aggressive path to market than some of the challenges that we're seeing now with the cell-based meat companies, for example. And they've just got a lot more to solve for in terms of the commercial viability. And so really, it was the right tech to solve a particular problem. And I mean, cheese is almost like the holy grail as well. So once, in my own experience, once you become plant-based, cheese is often the very last thing that people give up for a very good reason. It's because we don't like cheese. We love cheese. Often people struggled with giving up cheese. I can be plant-based except for cheese. So first of all, there was a need. There was a consumer desire in the market for a product that meets that. So that was number one. Number two is then when I looked at the dairy space altogether, well, cheese is an increasing product. Within dairy, yogurt and cheese are the two highest growth categories. And dairy in itself is also an increasing market category. So there's a need for it. And what's more fascinating about cheese, the more I learned about it, the more apparent it became. That cheese is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter of all food types per kilogram behind beef and lamb. That was quite revolutionary to me. Like I did not know that. And the reason for that is because it takes 10 litres of milk to make one kilogram of cheddar, for example. So you can compound the negative consequences of just producing milk times 10 to make cheese. So even if you displaced all of the milk in the world today with plant-based alternatives, you would have quite a small impact on dairy agriculture because cheese is still increasing dramatically at a ratio of 10 to 1. So until you solve the cheese problem, you're not actually solving the dairy problem. And once I made that connection, it was just like, wow, we need people to focus on cheese. (laughs) Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. You'll meet people like Shannon Falconer, co-founder and CEO of Because Animals, who, like David Boca, is working to reduce our reliance on animal agriculture. In her case, by growing cultured meat in a lab to offset the pet food supply chain. Or Doug Evans, a plant-based pioneer and the author of The Sprouts Book, who talks about the simple and cheap food he calls the ultimate superfood. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So can you talk a little bit more about the microbes and why that approach is different than what current dairy industry looks at? What's fascinating, cheese is just such a great product to work on because before I even became plant-based, I was the cheese nerd that used to watch a program called Cheese Slices, <laughs> which I was just fascinated with cheese production. I mean, it's just so cool. I love the fact that you go from one ingredient, which is milk, and you create the plethora of cheeses that we have around the world today. And the magical component that makes that difference is literally microbes. So through fermentation, initial fermentation of the milk, and then of course, secondary ripening of the curd with different microbes, they act differently on the different components of milk to create the world of cheeses that we know of today. And so I love the idea of, well, actually, why do we use those same microbes, but in a different way with the best of 21st century tools and science to actually try to recreate the same cheese using the same microbes, but just using them in a different way. And so I just love the elegance of that story and the fact that, in fact, we're not necessarily trying to stop cheese making and stop the wonderful traditions of these 
cultural empires like France and Italy and all these European cheesemakers, which they've established for centuries, but rather let's work with them to recreate cheese, but just using different inputs and bringing it to the 21st century. So I love that idea of actually not necessarily stopping beautiful traditions, but rather working with them and just revolutionizing them in a different way. How do you take this new approach (laughs) to the investment community and get it funded? So once I drew the connection that I really wanted to focus on precision fermentation or microbial fermentation and redirect it to solve the cheese problem, then it was a question of what, how do I get started, right? Food is very personal. It's an emotional thing. And I think that I love the idea of brand building and trying to educate consumers through food. So once I made all of those connections, I think it was probably early 2019, and then I really sort of just dove straight into the science. I mean, I'm, I'm a technical, I mean, I'm not a biotechnician, but I'm a very sort of technical person. So I read up as much literature as I could. I read some of the, the scientific literature on my, microbial fermentation and, and biotech and came up to speed with as best as I could with um, learning about what are the, some of the key microbes used in this sort of space and came across some wonderful research papers and found some amazing talent on my back doorstep in Australia. In fact, one of the professors at Macquarie University, she was a a pioneer in fungal biogenetics since the 70s, originally from Finland, and she was a professor at Macquarie University in Sydney. So of course, my immediate gut response was, let's just write her an email, you know, and and of course we struck up a wonderful relationship. And she was fascinated in this application of that science to, to solve food problems that she's never really worked on before. And she just retired from the university. So she ended up accepting an invitation to be on our advisory board. And then she connected me with a colleague of hers for over 20 years that she worked uh, with in academia, who was at at the time up at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. And that's now our our current uh, co-founder and and CTO, Junior. So we flew up to Junior's lab in late 2019 and uh, took him out for a vegan burger and said, hey, I've got something for you. And that's where it all started. And here we are a couple of years later and and accomplished a lot of R&D. And it's a really exciting opportunity to be on. So how big is your team now? Gosh, we just brought on three new scientists in our new San Jose lab last week, actually. So I think as of today, we would be 11 or 12, I'd say 12 people and growing. So we're looking for four more actually to bring on board as soon as possible. So we'll be you know, mid-teens in the next couple of months. Well, what's exciting is that your new headquarters is the Silicon Valley, which used to be known as the land of heart's delight. This is agriculture. And I always talk about this as a great passion of mine is that we put concrete on some of the most fertile land in the world. And you're coming back with a plant-based approach to dairy. So let's talk about why Silicon Valley and and what's this going to do to help you turbocharge the next level for the company. Well, back in the early days when I was thinking about the company, I was really trying to just really navigate, well, what do I need to do to give this the best chance of success? Australia is fantastic for so many reasons. We're great innovators. There's great access to R&D. We've got fantastic scientists. But Australia is also limited in commercialization in many ways. We're a relatively small economy spread out across Australia and over a very large landmass. And so it's difficult to ship things around. And I had a lot of experience through my food company startup that I was part of um, in first-hand experience with that and some of the dilemmas. And so I knew that this technology was going to require a lot of investment and a lot of R&D because I've been following a lot of other companies in the space and understanding what are they directing the capital towards. And a lot of it is to do with scale-up, setting up new facilities and the like. And so with the realisation of, well, how do we commercialise this in a country that doesn't 
really understand the opportunity very deeply in terms of the investor community. And so there was a lot of education to be done around, you know, why this is something to back. And, and of course, typically in Australia, the investment community is a little bit more conservative in that regard. And so how do I raise potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to properly scale this and commercialize this as aggressively as possible into market? So that was a clear limitation of just doing everything within the borders of Australia. And there's been lots of evidence of past inventions like the black box in an aircraft, for example, that was invented in Australia. Wi-Fi that we use globally was invented in Australia. So there's some fantastic innovations and tech that comes out of Australia, but they're typically commercialized in other more substantial markets that, you know, you can leverage the resources of, of and, uh, and get to market a lot more quickly and at the right scale. And so that was a, a real reality in this particular situation. So how do we actually scale in large food grade industry fermenters? How do we raise hundreds of million dollars of capital? And more so, how do we work with a favorable regulatory environment to be able to bring these products to market as quickly as possible? And of course, in the US, there were some precedents with players like Perfect Day that had worked with the FDA and had actual products commercialized and in market. And so for SANS as a food regulator in Australia is also quite conservative in their treatment of novel ingredients and so forth. And so we knew that also there'd be probably a longer pathway to market through the regulatory lens in Australia as well. So basically piecing all of these components together back in 2019 and speaking with some investors and realizing that there was going to be a lot of hurdles to jump, we made the, the tough decision to set up a, a parent company in the US from day one, especially because part of our strategy was also to build a strong aspirational food brand. And where better to build a strong, wonderful, reputable brand than you know in the Bay Area in the US. And so for that reason as well, that was another real calling for us to set up in the US, which we had to do. And of course, COVID hit and we had all of the issues with not being able to travel and everything else. And so it just added another layer of complexity to the situation. But remarkably, I mean, Zoom has just done wonders for for us. I mean, we did all of our fundraising all over Zoom remotely. We built the most incredible executive team in the US over LinkedIn and Zoom. So managed to still achieve some really significant milestones all remotely, which has just been fantastic to see. And so it is possible. And we had to figure out a way to navigate through all of that as well. I'm curious. So did you lead your conversation with climate change and sustainability? Or did you just call people and say, I want to talk to you about cheese? <laughs> well, that's a good thing about this space, right? Is that whichever lens you put on top of it, it, it almost works, right? You can talk to people about animal welfare. You can talk to people about environment and sustainability. You can talk to people about food and the love of food and cheese. And it depends on who you're speaking with, really, and what their main drivers and motivations are. But with all of us, I must say a common thread is food. You know, with Arena as our chief marketing officer and Luis, our uh, COO, our chief operating officer, we do have an underpinning of good food, good quality food. And of course, we, I think, started the conversation centered around food, which in fact is part of our DNA as a company and brand in itself, because I did notice a lot of other companies really leaning in too heavily on the science. And I think that that's a bit lost with the average consumer and trying to disrupt a category is that you need to actually talk about food and how delicious and yummy it is and sort of drop sometimes the technical aspects of it. It doesn't mean that you should hide things. I mean, being fully transparent is super important because people need to understand how this is produced. But ultimately, food is, a, is, is an emotional and cultural experience. And I think People sometimes oversee that. And so one thing we all had in common from the very start was the fact that, no, no, we are food first and foremost. That's backed by this technology. We're not a tech company trying to push into food. We're a food company that's using this tech to its advantage. And I think that paradigm distinction 
made all the difference in our initial conversations and figuring out who to bring on board. So let's talk about your products. What varieties of cheeses can you, is it just going to be hard cheese, soft cheese? It will be yogurt-based products. I mean, what's the array of things that you can do with this? Theoretically anything, because we're recreating the exact same dairy compounds, but we're choosing to focus on initially cheddar and mozzarella and some of the harder style cheeses, just because they've been the most difficult to replicate through alternatives in market today. So they've got the biggest performance gap. You'll find if you buy the leading vegan mozzarella, for example, you know, it won't necessarily stretch very well. It'll you know, different brands are slightly different, but they might not taste the same. It sort of burns, doesn't melt, <laughs> you know. So there's certainly functional and performance gaps with current cheese alternatives today. So there's a huge desire to be able to produce products that actually stretch, melt, you know, have the right mouthfeel and taste delicious. So we're obviously starting with them, but over time we can redirect, you know, cheese making to any cheese theoretically, including some artisanal style cheeses and, and everything else as well. So we'll definitely be focused on cheese as the initial product focus. However, yogurt and other dairy products will probably be a close second, but we'll have to work on the cost curve initially because yogurt is a cheaper price point as well. So there's also a practical reality of cost that comes into this as well. And now we're at the point of scaling up our our products into food grade fermenters to be able to produce enough compounds that we can then work with and continue our formulation work with. So it's going to be a really exciting year for us because we're going to be getting to a point where we're going to have a lot of cheese to taste and to try and hopefully even have for a test market around the Bay Area um, towards the end of the year, which is tremendously exciting. So I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that when it uh, comes to fruition. Yeah. What does it taste like? (laughs) This is the revolutionary thing is that we haven't actually eaten it yet. We've smelt it and played around with it and formulated with it, but until it's produced in a food grade facility, which is what we're currently doing as we speak, you know, that's when we'll actually be able to eat it. What I think I'm most excited by is the formulations themselves. I mean, as I talked about earlier, traditionally everything has come from milk and the limitations thereof of milk. Whereas now because we're rebuilding cheese or dairy from the ground up and selecting particular components, we can keep away all of the nasty. So we're recreating cheese without lactose. Obviously, there's no hormones used in the process, no antibiotics, no cholesterol, for example. And of course, what else can we do to make it even better? And I think that is just tremendously exciting to be able to customize different flavor combinations or even combine different components of milk from different species, for example. I mean, really where you can take this is tremendously exciting and will keep us busy for a long, long, long time. So there'll be potentially cheeses that we've never even tried before, which will be a lot healthier for us in a more sustainable way. And I think where that stops, no one knows. You know, that can keep going forever in terms of the different combinations of things you can bring together in food. That was David Boca. While he still calls himself a vegan, David says he's learned to lighten up on the strictures of veganism. Too often, he says, the vegan subculture focuses too much on the idea of purity. And in some cases, they've turned off well-meaning people who are trying to align their diets with their values. The very nature of his work requires David to sometimes sample real cheese. When he's traveling and there's no vegan options available, he might break his own self-imposed rules. And he's gotten comfortable with what he calls his imperfections. David preaches doing what you're comfortable with to help reduce our dependence on animal agriculture. But do something. Maybe you give up dairy. Maybe you simply celebrate Meatless Monday 
Try an impossible burger. Practical and pragmatic solutions do move the needle. As David says, when you can't do everything, don't do nothing. Every little bit helps. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.